All right, well, good morning. Oh, man, everyone's awake today. All right, well, my name is uh, Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. And so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, whether you like to load them or open them, uh, go ahead and go to James chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. So we have a lot of content to walk through and work through. Uh, so I'll go fast. I've had my coffee, so I hope you've had yours or are having yours. Um, man, you know, what's crazy is, so we started this series in James uh, a couple of months ago. And, uh, you know, I love looking at calendars. I like color coding all this stuff. And uh, as we look toward the new year, one, it's crazy to talk about the new year. Two, we find ourselves only having four more Sundays in James and literally five more Sundays until the new year comes. So time is going by ridiculously fast. Um, And so if you are just joining us, Uh, Or if you've missed out, because as the holidays come in, I know we make plans with friends and family. We travel to and from the valley. Um, If you're just joining us, we've been in this series for the past couple of months. It's called Faith in Action, and we've been walking through James. And I believe it's been incredibly meaningful and impactful to walk through this book because, uh, because it's so practical. Right? If, if you've ever gotten a chance to read through James, or if you have a chance to read through James today, and as we work through chapter 4, he's immensely practical. He's really good at just talking about what we should do, what we shouldn't do, but also why we shouldn't do those things, and why we should do other things. I love James because he just gets to the point. Right? That tends to be something he, he does a lot in. And so as we find ourselves in chapter 4, I'm just going to preface this before giving you an illustration. Chapter 4 in the book of James is probably the harshest section of this letter. And so he's going to dive deep addressing specifically the church as he has throughout the entire letter. Uh, but here he's, he is narrowing down his focus to the church. And so as I was thinking through it earlier this week, this being kind of one of the rougher sections of scripture in terms of the language that he's going to use and how he addresses the church, as I was working through it, I thought, man, this is going to be either, man, just a punch and a hug, or it's going to be incredibly appropriate in light of Thanksgiving this week. Because at the heart of it, and I'll say this again uh, later on, at the heart of this section of James, he's going to be talking about conflict. Now, uh, many of us, uh, hopefully all of us, had some time off this week. You had some time off to maybe spend time with friends and family. Whether it was a couple of hours or a couple of days, you had the opportunity to to hang out with friends and family. And uh, If you're like me, you ran into conflict at some point, right? Uh, Because that, at the end of the day, happens. When it comes to friendships, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to family, when it comes to us as a church family, let me just break it to you, conflict is inevitable, right? Yesterday, which was really, really cool, I'll I'll give you a, a quick story. Yesterday, I got to officiate my brother's wedding, And I thought that was really, really cool. But apart from that, I tend to think back on when he and I were growing up because he and I shared a room together and there was conflict every single day. And so I never thought I'd actually be uh, officiating his wedding in light of 
how many fights we got into. But the point of all of this is, especially as we got together for the holidays, conflict's going to happen. You put a lot of people, you put sinners into a room, and conflict will at some point happen. And so that's where James is taking us today. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that. What I'm going to do, because we have so much to cover, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just take sections at a time, or work through sections at a time. And we're going to start our time in verses 1 through 5. So let me pray. Uh, or better yet, let me read one through five, and then, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into this, right? So this is what James writes. This is chapter four, the beginning of chapter four, verses one through five. He writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we have prepared our hearts for your preached word, number one, I pray that you would simply set me aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit that speaks through me, inevitably working in and through the lives and hearts of your people. Father, I pray that as we walk through your word, that we would be uh, convicted, um, that we would be compelled, and that we would be led to repent of our sin so that we would come to a place of trust in Jesus and worship of Jesus, bringing all glory to him. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. So in this section, as I mentioned, James is specifically addressing the church. He's not talking to anybody outside the church. He's not being hypothetical. He's not saying, hey, there are others outside. He is specifically dealing and addressing with issues surrounding the church. And at the heart of this section, he is talking about or he's writing about conflict. And as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to family, right? When it comes to us as family, conflict is inevitable. As I broke some news to you about conflict being inevitable, let me break some more news to you. You were not saved so that you would avoid conflict. You're still going to find conflict. And ultimately what James is writing about in verses 1 through 12 is how to handle conflict, either in an ungodly manner, which is what you and I will probably tend to do or default to, and how to deal with conflict in a godly manner. So there are two ways of doing it. And what he's going to do here is, or in verses one through five, he addresses the first one. He addresses how we handle, not only how we create, let me, let me back up a little bit, not only how we create, but how you and I handle conflict in an ungodly manner. That's essentially what he begins. And he writes about three things, right? So uh, again, if you're, if you're joining us, you'll see this a lot. If you've been with us for a while, you know I love lists. And so he lists three things, or he talks about three things that lead to conflict and then ultimately determine how we deal with conflict. And so the first one that he talks about is emotion, 
And what he means by emotion, he writes it in verses one and two. He writes in it regarding passions and desires, right? See, what he means by this regarding an ungodly manner of dealing with conflict, what he says is conflict begins with emotion. Conflict begins, I should say, in the heart. See, Proverbs 4, or chapter 4, verse 23 says, out of the heart flow the springs of life. And so if we are dealing with conflict or something in an ungodly manner, when it comes to envy or pride or selfish ambition or even bitterness, all of these things begin in the heart before they ultimately become actions, right? And so he says that our passions and our desires, our emotions begin at the heart. This is where conflict starts. This is where you start preaching some sort of a gospel to yourself. And it may not necessarily be the good news of Jesus. Ultimately, what it may be is you uh, negotiating or compromising with something that you may not have that you think you should have. You may want a position that you don't have, or you feel like you should own that position. Whatever it is, it's ultimately going to begin in the heart And then what he says is that it leads to covetedness. Now, when we're talking about covetedness, ultimately what we're saying is that we want what others have. Right? We want what others have. Now, there are several sub-points in this section that we'll talk about, but particularly when it comes to covetedness, you see how it first started in the heart. So, for example, when it comes to bitterness, you begin to negotiate and talk about how someone did you wrong, or maybe someone has something that you feel you deserve. But rather than actually going to them and talking to them about it, what you end up doing is you end up beginning to fester this bitterness. And when we begin to harm and fester and protect this bitterness, ultimately what happens is that it will grow and spill over into every aspect of our lives. And it's not going to do that all at once, but it will leak and then fill one area and then leak into another and fill that other area up. And I'm using bitterness as an example, but you can substitute bitterness with anything else that you'd like. And so when that happens, we ult- it ultimately leads to covetedness. Why should they be married? Shouldn't I be married? I've done the right things. Why should they have kids? How come I don't have kids? How come he got the position or the job? Why should she be there and not me? Ultimately, what happens is that you begin to want what others have. And what I love about this section is that James points out everything that you and I will tend to do. Because... When we begin with ungodly passions in our heart that lead to covetedness, the first thing that we, all, that we tend to do is that we will tend to create conflict and beef with those other people, and they may not even know it. They might not even know that you have beef with them. That's number one. Number two, at no point did you sit back, be still, and go to God. Go before God with some of these desires or some of these things that are in your heart. Now, as I mentioned, James addresses everything because you might be in your chair saying, no, wait, I did go to God. I did stop and sit down. So he addresses it, right? He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. So that means your motivations aren't aligned with the will of God. You might be thinking in your chair, no, I did sit and I did pray just to shut me up. But at the end of the day, we didn't because our motivations aren't aligned with God. Now, you might believe that your emotions or excuse me, your desires are aligned with God. And then he gives you an answer. 
And it's the answer that all kids hate. What is it? No. Right? And so that even fueled you even more, right? Man, I prayed to God. I did the things I think I should have. I prayed the way I should have done. I went to the right people. I was still for six months. And then God told me no. Well, I don't understand why he would say no. I've done these things, right? I've done those. I've talked to this. Whatever your thing is, all you're doing is proving this process, that it went from uh, emotional, ungodly passions and desires, and it led to covetedness. So all you're doing is revealing, or all we do in that moment is reveal our hearts, right? And then he says the last thing, that we begin to develop friendship with the world. Now notice he says friendship with the world, not friendship to the world, all right? At no point am I knocking that you shouldn't have friendships with uh, non-Christians. You should. Non-Christians should be some of your friends, and they should know you, and you should have the door open for them to tell you stuff about you, right? That's really uncomfortable, okay? You should have some non-Christian friends. In fact, you should even invite them into your house to uh, be hospitable to them, to show hospitality to them. So at no point am I knocking friendship to the world. We are part of it. We're just not... Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in it. We're just not a part of it. But here's the other thing. He says friendship with the world. So let's talk about what he means when he says friendship with the world. Now, remember, this is a process. We went from heart desires, ungodly heart desires, right, to coveting, to now having friendship with the world. And, and when he writes about friendship, he's not using that word, that word friendship. He's not using that word casually, like, yeah, you and I are buds. We hang out every once in a while. It's cool. You got my number. No, what he means specifically in their context of friendship is that, well, in the church and in their context, friendship meant that they shared everything. They shared everything physically and they shared everything spiritually. And so when he says that we have friendship to the world, that we create enmity with God, that we become enemies of God, he's ultimately saying that God tolerates no rival, that upon you and I flirting or even diving and engaging into friendship with the world, what you and I are saying at that point is that we're okay compromising what we believe and how we act, essentially. Douglas Moo says it this way, and he says it way better than I ever could. He writes, when believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to the world rather than to God. That's the reason James not only uses the word friendship, but then calls the church adulterous people. You see, in Scripture, particularly Ephesians 5, we see that Christ is the groom and his bride is the church. So we are the church. And he is calling the church adulterous people because we are being unfaithful to the groom. We are unfaithful to the groom when we pursue, engage, and have friendship with the world. Additionally, this is something that we talked about all the way back in chapter one, where he addressed the double-minded person, that the the root definition of that meant a double-souled individual. That is someone who likes to flirt with good advice from the world and some good pieces of the good news, and then slaps them together and tries to make one out of it. Let me tell you, God will tolerate no rival. 
He will tolerate no rival. And upon us flirting and engaging with that, Scripture says that we become an enemy to God. That's really hard language. It's really harsh language. Additionally, as, as Douglas Moo said, that when we choose to do that, what we are saying is that our allegiance, our heart is to the world and not to God. Practically, what we say to others, whether it's within the church or even outside of the walls within the church, what we say is that as a Christian, it is okay to compromise our beliefs. It is okay to not stand fast or firm in what we believe in and in who God says we are. So instead, we compromise. We compromise so that maybe we don't feel rejected. We compromise so that you don't have to talk to the person that you probably should talk to. You compromise so that you would get the position you really want. You compromise so that you would have what you feel is joy and completeness in your life. Whether that's marriage, whether that's kids, you compromise. And so what we do in that is, again, we flirt and engage with worldliness. We engage with friendship to the world. And he closes this section. He closes this section by saying, do you not suppose, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Scripture says that if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And One of the roles of the Holy Spirit, or the most prominent role, is that he does not work or speak apart from Scripture. And because of that, when we choose friendship with the world, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Compromising is a big deal, because what that says, or what that does, is that we compartmentalize our faith all about that Christian life on Sundays, all about that Christian life on, uh, what else, community groups or church-like functions, right? Uh, but then when it comes to anything outside of that, it's a completely different portrayal of who you are. That's engaging with the world. And again, if you're, if you're new or if you're catching up and, and you hear that language, like the world, or engaging with the world, and what does it mean? So last week we talked a little bit about that. And the world ultimately means, when we say that we're acting or responding worldly, what we're saying is, excuse me, what we're saying is that uh, the residue of who we were before Christ rescued us, that is how we're operating. We're operating in our old self. We're operating in who we were pre-Jesus. And we want to operate in that. That's what it means to respond worldly. Now, you can look back at this week and think through the time that you spent with your family and maybe even think of a conflict and think how it got to this. Remember, it started somewhere in the heart and then it led somewhere else. It led you somewhere Additionally, through this whole process, remember, one of the things that's happening in the church, so this isn't just a personal, oh man, this is something that's happening in my heart and I should probably repent of. You should, but what he is writing in and what happens in the church is he is saying, number one, you don't have so you murder. Some commentators say that uh, he is referring to spiritual murder. In other words, you're so angry at someone that, uh, you know, if they weren't here tomorrow, you probably wouldn't lose any sleep, right? Which is not good. Uh, 
but other commentators believe that there actually were acts of murder inside the church, right? Additionally, he says that fights and quarrels happen. So this means that they were literally fighting against one another. That at no point did they stop to actually seek God and his word. Instead, they fought one another. So when we talk about this process of, of passions and desires beginning in the heart, leading to covetedness, leading to friendship with the world, don't think this is just an internal thing. What he's referring to is something that starts internally and then begins or ends with action within the church. This is part of the reason the church is so separated, So let's call it what it is, and when we engage in fights and quarrels, it's literal. You may not be using your fists, but you're using your words. You might not be using your kicks, but man, you're on uh, social media ripping someone off. Call it what it is. This is why the church is separated. This is what leads to division. And the irony is, No one knows you got beef with them. People don't even know you got beef with them. You you rather choose cowardly acts of friendship with the world than actually engage with your brother and your sister. And so we become further divided. We become further divided from one another and we become further separated from Jesus. And all we do is exemplify a really good example, I'll say, at what it looks like to be unfaithful. That's what we do when we engage in all of this. And then he goes into verse six. All right, if that was in like, that's the punch, right? So verse six, he writes, but he, that's God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Man, there is hope in that verse that he gives grace, undeserving favor. He gives grace. That as we walked through verses 1 through 5, maybe you are sitting in your chair realizing that you do need to talk to somebody because of stuff that you've already done or started, right? Here's the the encouragement, the exhortation that he gives more grace. But there's a cost to it. Grace isn't cheap. There's a cost. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's, let's look at those two types of individuals, right? The first one is the proud. The proud is those who stand in opposition to God, and those who do stand in opposition to God will always encounter resistance from God. And then he addresses the humble. The humble are those, here's the cost, the humble are those who receives God's grace because they're willing to admit their need and their need for help. They're willing to admit their need for help. Right? And by by way of exhortation, as, as you're here, if this is you, Stop thinking about the person that you feel needs to humble themselves because it's you. Okay? So stop putting someone else in that chair. The humble are those who receive the grace of God because of their admittance to their willingness to need help. 
Let's listen to uh, the words of Jesus. This is Luke 18, verses 9 through, through 14. He writes, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus says, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. That might be some of you. In fact, that is us at some point. We're pretty good. Show up to church, give my tithes. I pray before every meal. Uh, You know, I get on my knees before I go to bed. I'm a good guy. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, this is Jesus now talking. He says, I tell you, this man, he's talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? When we pursue humility, right? Or as we pursue humility, what it does It's that it shows us, it allows us to see our sin for what it is, right? It allows us to see our sin for what it is. Thus, it shows us how much we are in need of Jesus. It shows us and leads us to this place where we do desire his mercy and his forgiveness. But we need to admit our need first, we need to admit, excuse me, we need to admit our need. So let's go to verses 7 and 10. So the exhortation was that God gives more grace to those who are humble. That means those who can see their sin because as they see their sin, they're willing to admit their need, their need for help. And so verses 7 through 10, even going in through 11 through 14, what he's going to do now is he's going to give the prescription. This is how you pursue humility, or excuse me, as you pursue humility, this is what you should do. These are the godly things that you should do when we encounter conflict. So we've talked about a three-step process to encounter a conflict in an ungodly manner. The answer to that is repentance and us pursuing humility so that we could see our sin. And now he addresses, so this is how you do it. All right. That's what I love about James. This is, this is how you do it. So humility allows us to see our sin. Let me read verses seven through 10, and then we'll walk into, into what he says, right? So he says, uh, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Where are we? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sounds depressing. We'll talk about that. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
So as I mentioned, he gives the prescription. This is now what you and I must do as we pursue humility. This is now what you and I must do if we are going to engage in conflict and respond in a humble manner, excuse me, in a godly manner. And so the first thing he says is to submit yourselves or to submit to God. This means to come underneath the authority of God and his word. That's the definition of belief. The definition of belief means to come under the authority, under the authority of whatever that belief system is. So if we say that we belong to Jesus, that we believe in God and his word, that means that we are coming underneath the authority of God and his word. Additionally, as we submit ourselves to God and as we find ourselves in like-minded community with other people pursuing humility and other people submitting themselves to God, what then happens is that they can then speak into our lives because the same Holy Spirit that lives in you lives in me and in them. And as the Holy Spirit lives in them, he works in them and through them. And sometimes working through them means calling you out. (laughs) And it hurts But the Holy Spirit does not work or speak apart from Scripture. So submit yourselves to God. Number two, he says, resist the devil. That if you belong to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That means you have the power to stand firm and to stand against the schemes of the devil. You have that power. You have the power to say no to sin. Okay? Sin has been conquered, yet, but it's still not destroyed. Or in other words, it's still present. But through the Holy Spirit, you have the power to say no. So here's a practical question, right? This is, this is all now practical. Here's the practical question. What leads you to temptation? It's a very practical, honest, and easy question, I think. What leads you into temptation? See, for those who I've met and people who who wrestle with, as an example, who wrestle with pornography, right? Man, what leads you into that temptation? Well, you know, being alone, going out by myself. Practically, it's let's get you away from that. Let's get you to not be alone. Let's get you to not go out by yourself. And let's probably get some really good software on your computer, those are, those are practical steps. Now, you might recognize that certain things lead you to temptation, but the question is, are you doing something about it? Or do you just keep telling yourself, now, oh, that was the last time, that was the last one, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know why? Because I'm strong. No, you're not. No, you're not. All right? So, particularly in conflict, as we're, as we're talking about conflict, you're like, you know, I'm just not going to talk to that person. That's how I'm going to resist temptation. No, you're a fool. Okay? You're, you're going to go and approach them and talk to them. Right? <clears throat> the devil's desire is to have you go from a godly, humble response to, to conflict to an ungodly and proud response to conflict. Number three, draw near to God. Now, this is not a statement of salvation. Hear me on that. This part where he's talking, right, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. This is not a statement of salvation, but of restoration 
for the believer. Here, what he is saying is if you submit yourself to God and his word, remember, it's a process. As you submit yourself to God and his word, as you resist the devil, and as he promises, he will flee from you. He says, draw near to God. In other words, come draw yourself near to God, be restored to God. It's ultimately a cry for repentance. He is saying, repent of your sin. He is there waiting for you. Repent of your sin. Listen to Hosea 12, uh, 6. He says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It is a cry for repentance. That is what it is. It's a cry for repentance and a need for restoration. That's what he is saying. Number four. Uh, number four, he writes that cleanse your hearts and purify, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. I love the way James uses language, uh, particularly in this section. He is using Old Testament Jewish literature. And so uh, sometimes it sounds really, really poetic, but he's very, very literal. And so when he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, what he is doing is he's addressing both the behavior and the character, right? He's addressing both the external and the internal. And so just like number three, which was a cry for repentance here, he is saying, man, so repent of your behavior, the things that you should be doing or the things that you are doing that you shouldn't repent of those repent of your external behavior. And he addresses, purify your hearts. So he says, man, cry out to God so that he would clean your heart and transform your heart. That leads to a transformation of that external behavior. This entire thing is this call to repentance. And so when he says, cleanse your hands, he is saying, man, repent of what you've done. When he says, purify your hearts, he is saying, beg God to transform your heart, right? And he's taking, he's quoting in a way, or excuse me, he's referencing Psalm 24, 3 through 4, where the psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has his hands, he who has his clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Number five, mourning and gloom. That's that section that we just kind of covered very quickly, and it sounds depressing. Right where he says, like, let your laughter turn into to mourning and your joy to gloom. Here's what he means by that. Right? It's not so that you would become emo. Nobody likes that. Okay? Um, what he is saying, though, what he is saying is, look at your sin for what it is. It is separation from God. It is what R.C. Sproul calls cosmic treason. Look at your sin. See, part of the reason we'll go through some of these things and we just think it's a good idea but never actually do anything about it is because we don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously. You know what? Yeah, screwed up again. My bad. Won't do that. What sin does is that it separates us from God. We commit cosmic treason when we sin. When was the last time? So when he says, you know, uh, let, let your laughter turn to mourning. The reason he says laughter is because in the Old Testament, laughter is associated with the fool. 
And when he talks about turning your joy to gloom, when he uses the word joy, he is referring to the superficial um, fulfillment that, that we get when we indulge in our sin. That's what he's talking about. When was the last time you sat, you were still, and wept over your sin, over the separation that it led between you and God? When was the last time we did that? When was the last time that our sin led us to mourning? If you can't think of a time, it's been too long. And if we can't think of a time, what may, has ha- what may have happened is that we've become desensitized to our sin. It's just a part of who we are. It's just what happens. What he's saying when he says, let your laughter turn to mourning. See your sin for what it is. Stop being the fool. And see that it separates you from God. That we cause treason. And as we look at conflict, that it is separating us from others. It is separating us from our church family. Look at it for what it is. Because when you look at it for what it is, what it's going to do is going to put you on your knees and you will recognize your need for Jesus. You will recognize your need for help you will recognize how far you are from the Savior. Then you will draw near to him because you will repent of your sin. And as you draw near to him, you will become strengthened to resist the devil. And as you resist the devil, you are submitting yourself to God and his word. And ultimately, it leads to the last thing in this section, exaltation. Humility leads to exaltation. And he used this back in chapter 2. But exaltation is a reminder. It's a reminder that our spiritual strength is not through our own strength. It is not through our own effort, but by giving ourselves to God. So those are the six things. Those are the six things that, that in the prescription of that section. There's a seventh, and it goes into verses 11 through 12. But as a quick recap, so submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God in repentance. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Mourning and gloom. And then finally, exaltation. So let's just dive into 11 and 12. He writes, so all that being said, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Next slide. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is one last final argument where James, in the beginning, opened up with a question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now he ends with a question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The argument that he addresses here, the argument that he addresses in this section is how we speak to one another. And what he is referring to is gossip and slander. Now we've talked a lot about gossip and slander throughout James, and we've talked about if we're addressing the church, we've talked about how we use gossip, or excuse me, we use the banner of the church and the banner of church culture to gossip about others. You know who you should pray for? X, Y, and Z. You know who's really been on my heart? That's gossip, and you know it, so stop masking it with prayer, right? Okay? Instead, you know you got beef with them. Go talk to them. Stop talking about them. 
right? And so he's addressing gossip and slander, and he, uh, he addresses excuse me, our need for repentance on how we judge others. You see, when we mask gossip with prayer, ultimately what we're doing is we're judging others. You know who really does need prayer? Let me tell you who, and let me tell you why. You're judging them. Now, oftentimes, what I've seen in my brief experience in church culture is that when there is gossip and there is slander, several things are happening. Number one, have truths are being built. Number two, not everybody has all of the facts. And then number three, one of the parties is building up their side of the story. But nothing's getting done about it. Nothing's getting done about it. And we'll hide under the banner of church culture, right? And so what he is saying here, uh, right before that section, what he is saying is, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but uh, judge. What you are doing, when you begin to judge others incorrectly, inappropriately, and poorly, what you are saying is that you are like God. That's what you do. Instead of taking it up with them and addressing whatever it is that we need to address with one another, what you do in your power or in the limited power that you think you have, what you do is that you become judge, that you become God, that you can determine their spiritual destiny because you know better, because you got it figured out. And what he's doing is he's referencing from Matthew in this section. In Matthew, it's where Jesus says, don't be afraid of the one who can kill you. Be afraid of the one who can kill you and send you to hell. That's what you should be afraid of. Right? And so some of you become judge or some of you want to become God. And you're not. You're just a fool. You're just a fool. So he's addressing repentance for doing those things. Uh, this is Leviticus 19, 18. He says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here's number seven. Right? So we talked about all those six. I can't remember them right now, but we talked about all six in, uh, what was it, 7 through 10, 11 through 12, here's the seventh part of the prescription, worship. Worship. Conflict isn't about winning. Man, and you might, let me just say this, conflict isn't about winning, okay? It is not about winning. And it's going to sound weird, so let me explain it. It's about worshiping, okay? Here, here's what I mean by it. When we go into a conflict, and I am not the only one. I am not the only one, right? When we walk into a conflict, you walk in there with an agenda. You got your five points, and you got some really good rebuttals. And you might be saying, no, I just have the facts. Yeah, the facts to win. You got an agenda, okay? Let's just clear the playing field, right? Conflict isn't about winning. Is conflict inevitable? Right, you're going to find conflict. It's going to be there. How we respond to conflict, how we deal with conflict will matter greatly because if you respond in a godly manner, it brings glory to Jesus. And as it brings glory to him, we can worship him. Why? Because in his mercy and his kindness and his goodness, he has reconciled us to the Father. That means that we have a relationship with the Father through the finished work on the cross by the Son. Right? Which means, practically, you and I, 
y'all together can have reconciliation. Why? Because it was already paid for at the cross. By whom? Jesus in full. In full. That is why you can have reconciliation. That is why you can worship God even in the midst of conflict by how you respond. Church, there are two truths in this entire section as a family. As if I haven't given you enough lists. There are two truths, right? Number one, we cannot avoid conflict, but we can respond with humility. As a church family, now this is us. This is us here, right? We cannot avoid conflict. We're going to find it. We're going to have it. There will be conflict. Just put it out there. We can respond in humility though. Number two, we, talking to all of us, we do, however, have an enemy. We do have an enemy. And his name is Satan. And a part of his goal is not only separation, but it's that we would respond in an ungodly manner to one another. So as we move forward, and as we move forward in James, as we move forward, as the holidays are kind of officially already here, let us be the church. That's the people. That's y'all. That's us. Let us be the church that responds in humility, that responds in a godly manner to one another, to those outside the walls, because we worship Jesus. That is why we respond the way that we do. Let us be known for that as opposed to uh, compromising our beliefs and conduct. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we uh, close our time, um, Lord, as I mentioned earlier, my prayer is that your word would um, convict us, it would, it would compel us to repent to repent of our sin, Lord. Look, you are so gracious. You are so good and so kind. And so my prayer is that your word penetrated deep <clears throat> into the marrow of our bones for the purpose of trusting in Jesus, for the purpose of worshiping him, bringing him glory. And Lord, seeking reconciliation with one another. I know we got beef. So let us be what you see normal, what we see radical. Let us be a church that reconciles with one another so that we would point all the glory to you, so that we would be reminded of the finished work of Jesus. So that this would be normal, not radical. And Lord, through your grace, you give us several ways to respond to your word as we prepare or continue to worship you with our tithes and offerings. This is where we give you our stuff. This is where we recognize that we are not held down by materials, that our trust ultimately is in you and not our stuff. But this is where we trust you so that at the end of the day, we would become more like Jesus. We'll have an opportunity to respond with communion. And this is where we give you our sin. 
And this is where you continue to work through your Holy Spirit in us, convicting us of our sin, that maybe today is the day where we have that conversation that we've been ignoring, where we apologize to whoever it is we need to apologize to for having beef and something that they didn't even know about. This is where we repent of our pride, of our arrogance, of our envy, of our selfish ambition and bitterness. This is where we give you our sin. That was the point of the cross. The point of the cross is that, that you, Jesus, took on our sin and in exchange gave us your righteousness, a righteousness that we did not obtain. And finally, that we would respond in song, that we would lift up our hearts and our voices to you for what you've done, what you are doing, and who you are, God. We love you and we thank you for this time. Amen.